Okay, so yeah, good morning, um, everyone. Um, hopefully, hopefully this is reaching y'all, other than just the people here in the building. Um, everyone online, I know that the Parkers aren't the only ones that were experiencing no power um, in Portland here. So uh, we have other members of the body who are without power and couldn't come. So I hope somehow this is going to reach them either now or <laughs> in the near future. Um, and that everyone's, you know, being safe out there in the snow. So, uh, once again, this month we are talking about what it means to be to truly practice self-care, self-care in a way that glorifies God um, over against an empty self-care, self-care um, that the world would offer. What it means to truly practice self-care and how we can sort of um, break free from just the very wordage itself. Um, <laughs> when we talk about self-care. Last week, um, we spent time talking about just the concept, right? The concept of self-care and how the world would um, want to inform us and teach us and speak into that and encourage us to do these certain things and these certain practices. Um, Practicing, you know, true self-care in a way that glorifies God means being able to discern between the counterfeit medications that the world describes. And this is what we were talking about last week. Medication that is laughable, right? We were poking fun at it. It was kind of fun. It was ridiculous, right? Medication that is, is empty, that's meaningless based on who you are, what you're going through, um, how you feel, all these things. The kind of self-care that only serves, as I mentioned last week, as a diversion or a distraction from your, wo- your woes rather than really addressing them um, and keeping God in that problem. The kind that the world offers is short-sighted. It's, it's fleeting. It's momentary, right? And I quoted, uh, I quoted one writer who says, in light of my painfully uh, obvious brokenness, I cannot be trusted as the solution to my own problems. And this is true. We have to consider and keep God in those situations and in those problems. And the answer to our care doesn't come from us, as the world would suggest. It doesn't come from deep within, as the world would suggest. Or what we can do, as the world would suggest. They want to put the power in your own hands when we talk about self-care, rather than submitting to God in all things. It's, through God, it's because of God, through Christ, that we can practice um, a biblical self-care. And our object, the person of focus, can never be ourselves, but should be God. So, that's a recap of last week. This is what we spent time talking about up here, what we spent time talking about in our cell group. So this week, we're going to continue the conversation of self-care by analyzing how it is that we view our time, specifically. How do we spend our time in a way that glorifies God, and how do we... um, Think about this idea of our time, right? Me time, free time. That's the question that's in focus today that we're going to try to talk about. Um, so how do we spend our time? You know, what should we be doing with our time? It's kind of a big question at face value, but remember the, the focus or the lens that we're viewing this through is specifically in terms of self-care and how the world wants to propagate indulging and, and grabbing for yourself me time when you separate from, you know, all the other things of life. So that's the lens that we're going to be 
going through self-care and discernment, remembering God rather than remembering yourself. You know, remember to take care of yourself. So with that, let's talk about time. Last week I mentioned that uh, the self-care strategies attempt to apply structure and discipline to this idea of me time. It attempts to recenter our world around ourselves, right? Self-care, ourselves, and looking for hope and healing and stability from some hidden place deep within yourself. So let's hone in on that. Everybody loves the idea of free time, right? Sounds nice. I love the idea of free time. I think we all do. Uh, time we have left after doing the things that we have to do, right? The work at home with kids, uh, with the wife or the husband, you know? Time we have for ourselves after all those things. There's, there's an automatically implied like separation and compartmentalization, you know, um, if you're familiar with the book Truth Time, to me it reeks of, you know, separating your worlds into different levels rather than viewing things as, as a holistic um, worldview. We're finally free to take care of ourselves after we've done all this work and, and we want to grab hold of it, after we've taken care of our family and um, after work is over. This is the culture's concept of free time, and this is what it wants you to, to grab onto. You know? This is what it wants you to feel, to make you feel like you shouldn't be ashamed of doing it. You know? you're, you're so busy. You should, you should really separate, separate from those things. I think that's a key, a key thing to remember. They want you to separate from those things to make sure that you are taken care of. Take care of you. When we've checked all the boxes of, of work, and we've checked all the boxes of the different responsibilities we have, we lean into the idea that we are wholly autonomous people, right? That we should be able to make decisions for ourselves and governed by nothing other than what we want, governed by no one other than ourselves. Free to do, finally, whatever we want with our time. We separate God, at the very least we we distance ourselves from God, but we separate God, really, um, rather than glorify him, even during um, times of leisure, times of uh, downtimes, times where there's not, you know, the hustle and bustle of life going on. We separate ourselves from him, and we want to make it into our own, rather than including God, even in those times. There's a theologian that cautions our inclination to think this way, uh, to think this way about time by offering a few warnings about that. And he lists these, these few warnings as, first of all, being idolatrous, right? Viewing our time as an object of, of worship rather than God. Viewing ourselves as an object of worship rather than God. He warns about the, um, the hedonistic tendencies that we, um, we, we gravitate toward when we um, participate in our free time, in our me time. And then he talks about it in terms of um, utilitarianism. So, idolatry in that some people worship their work, even. They worship, or they worship their time. They worship their le leisure activities. I think it, it was just last week that it was Super Bowl Sunday, right? That was last week. Yeah, time goes fast. Um, but they worship leisure activities. Um, they worship vacations, sports, right? Super Bowl Sunday, hobbies, music, um, whatever they're gardening, if that's your thing, or, or reading, or whatever it may be. 
Instead of serving and worshiping the creator, they, they want to worship and serve these things. They want to gravitate towards these things. Or as I said, they worship the work itself. Put a pin in that. We're going to talk a little bit about that in a moment. Um, but they worship the work itself, and they want to stay so, so busy. They trade the truth about God for a lie. Instead of remembering and worshiping and honoring and glorifying him, they remember and want to worship and honor all these created things in their use of their time. He warns about hedonism and that our time is solely for the pursuit of our own pleasure. And that can be anything to anyone, right? That's sort of what we talked about last week as well. Um, today, the love, uh, the, the theologian says this, today the love of luxury and the pull of pleasure are more intensely felt than at any time in Christendom. The quest for pleasure intellectual, so the way that we think, um, sensual, our sexuality, aesthetic, our vanity, gastronomic, our food. We'll talk about that later this year, maybe even next month, I think. Colin, is yours food next month? Yeah. yeah. Gastronomic, our pursuit of pleasure in the way that we view food, uh, alcohol, our narcissism, the way that we love ourselves. All of these quests for pleasure, he says, is... Uh, is one aspect of Western decadence, which is just the moral decline of Western culture. All of these pursuits of pleasure and the way that we treat time for our own hedonistic pursuits. And then he talks about utilitarianism, in that free time is valued only we think about it. We need to work, 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 work. I don't know if this is a distinctly like American idea. I know that like in European countries, for example, their views of time off and vacation are much different than here in, in America, right? Maybe they only work three days a week or something, or maybe they have like, like we, what's the standard for vacation in like a secular job, like two, two weeks a year or something like that, you know? Like there's, a, but theirs might be, uh, I don't know. American idea, just this concept of you should stay busy and you should keep grinding and grinding and grinding and grinding. Maybe it is, right? That's kind of how you achieve the American dream. Um, but the purpose of recreate a person to work more productively as they, as you, see fit. And many believers, many people in general, buy into this mindset when they become obsessed with a strong work ethic that they succumb to, like workaholics, being workaholics, workaholism. This sort of way of thinking, this utilitarian way of thinking, has mind share over many of us, as I said, as believers, but here in America. And Protestant Christianity promotes an uber-strong work ethic, which becomes unbalanced and leads to overactivity. How many of you guys know people or have people in your lives that go to other churches or something, and those other churches are just oversaturated with um, like programs, right? things to do. This is what a, a good church does. It's, it's just flooded with programs to the point it's utterly overwhelming and it's not doing a good thing unless you're staying busy, 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 busy all the time. That's the way that I think Protestant Christians, American Christians think about the use of time. I have people in my life who have lived that way in their relationship with God, their relationship with their, their bodies, their churches. Churches do that. 
Work for the sake of work. This is how we view a good use of time. Carl Johnson is a guy, he's a, he's a guy who has like a, a master's, a PhD um, in the history and philosophy of, of leisure activity. He's a Christian guy, he's a Christian writer. He, he writes and he um, lectures and stuff. But he documented in an essay that modern Christians tend to make busyness their religion. We admire and we imitate and so become Christian workaholics, supposing that the busiest believers are always the best, right? A true test of your faith isn't um, in the, the quality of the things you do, but in the quantity of the things you do. How much am I involved in? This is what a good Christian um, should be like and should do. That's what he's talking about. And our culture wears busy, busyness, like a badge, like a badge of honor, like, a, like an award, right? To be busy means you're important. When you ask someone how they're doing, uh, you either get the general, oh, yeah, good, you know, like the dismissive, like, good, or you might hear someone say, oh, I'm so busy, you know, I'm so busy, I have so much going on. They wear busy like a badge of honor, and to be busy means that you are important, you know, that you're engaged, that people need you, that you're, you're doing meaningful things, and maybe that's true, but they wear busyness like a badge of honor. You have to always be busy in order to have like a genuine and sincere relationship and faith in God. Saying you're busy is maybe like a virtue signal, you know, a virtue signal to people that um, ask how you're doing. There's a certain irony here, but to be busy, just to be comfortable, right? And if there's one thing we all love, it's, it's being comfortable. Being nestled in. We like familiar things. We don't like uncomfortable, uncomfortability. We don't like change. You know, it's hard to move on from, from comfort. We want to stay in that place of comfort. So some people find... A lot of people find comfort in busyness because, once again, they treat it, they treat their time as a distraction and a diversion and don't analyze their lives in a deeper way in their relationship with God. So they just stay busy as a means of distraction, right? And they think that that's how we should live and operate, and that's what a true Christian should be like. To be busy is to be working toward acceptance, and who doesn't like that, right? feels good to be accepted, accepted, like you're doing something right, like you're, um, you know, you finally have purpose. When you, when you, when you feel the external um, approval from someone or something else, you feel like you finally found your, your niche, right, where you're supposed to be in life just because you're accepted or because someone, you know, tells you, you know, good job or something. And to be busy means you're working towards something or you're working towards some form of uh, success. So we have comfort. We have acceptance, and we have success as our you know, trifecta for the busy mentality. When we find these things in our lives, we want to be led by them. That's our tendency, and we forget who and what we're supposed to be led by. We let, get led by our comfortability, our acceptance, and our success. And this is the formula we keep in our minds. Performance for comfortability, acceptance, and success is where we find our happiness. It's where we find our peace. This is what many churches and how many believers live. And the world would, would propagate that as well. Stay busy, stay busy. It means you're doing good. This is how you achieve things. This is how you'll get to where you 
want to be or you should be, and this is the mark of success for the American. You're tricked into thinking you found your true calling. As I said, you, because of that acceptance or because of that comfortability, because you've achieved a level of success somewhere, you're, you're sort of tricked into thinking you are right where you're supposed to be, you know? You're not listening, you're not being discerning, you're not remembering God in your mission anymore because of comfortability, acceptance, and success. We shut out God. We shut out God um, and his calling to us and choose to follow those other things. And we settle in and we leave behind our intention and our service to him. We forget about him utterly. And before long, we find ourselves stuck in this meaningless loop of working for the sake of work. Meaningless busyness because we've forgotten the where and the why and the how and the by who we're called to or the thing we're called to in the first place. You know, we choose, if you will, the fast food nourishment in our everyday living rather than like the well-balanced meal <laughs> that God provides when we are working toward his calling for us and where we should be and how we should be conducting ourselves in our time. <clears throat> Mark chapter 1, Jesus shows us, uh, there's, a, there's just an interesting um, example that we can take from Christ here um, in terms of how he might have viewed this sort of formula, this comfortability, acceptance, and success. So I'm going to read just a few verses, 29 through 38. It says, After Jesus left the synagogue with James and John, they went to Simon and Andrew's home. Now Simon's mother-in-law was sick in bed with a high fever. They told Jesus about her right away. So he went to her bedside, took her by the hand, and helped her sit up, and then the fever left her, and she prepared a meal for them. So he healed her. That evening, after sunset, many sick and demon-possessed people were brought to Jesus, and the whole town gathered at the door to watch. And so Jesus healed all of these many people who were sick with various diseases. And he cast out many demons, but because the demons knew who he was, he did not allow them to speak. And so this is the context, right? So here's the focus. Before daybreak the next morning, Jesus got up, went out and to an isolated place, and he prayed. And later Simon and the others went out to find him, and when they found him, they said, everyone's looking for you. Like, what are you doing? Everyone needs you. Everyone's looking for you. But Jesus replied, we must go on to other towns as well, and I will preach to them too. This is why I came. So he traveled throughout the region of Galilee, preaching in the synagogues and casting out demons. So consider his position, or how he must have felt, right? Here's a guy who's doing all these things, good things too, right? He's healing all these people. He's casting out demons. He's spending time in fellowship with these people. He's preaching to these people, giving them nourishment, right? And it says in the scripture here that everyone's looking for him. Like, they want more, right? He's found a level of acceptance, a huge level of acceptance, right? They're all looking for him, Simon says. Where are you? He's probably... Feeling good about it, right? Who wouldn't, considering his position? He's probably in a place of comfortability. He absolutely has acceptance, and it, it's clear that he was being successful in his, his ministry toward these people here. So consider his position <clears throat> and how easy it would have been for, for Jesus to stay in that place of comfortability, of that acceptance that he was um, getting, and success in his work. But... 
it says. He kept the Father in his focus. He, kept, he went away to pray, right? Even after all these things, he went away to pray. And when Simon and the others came to him and said, like, hey, we need you over here. Like, all these people need you and want you, and you're doing such a good job. He said, that's great, but we got to move on. There's, there's other work that I need to be doing, right? He kept his mission in focus. He didn't rest in that level of comfortability, of acceptance and success. He kept God in mind and his mission in mind. It's an interesting little study there and how we can so easily divert once we get those things, right? And how we spend our time. We forget God utterly because we found these things, right? Or we're being told these things to accept these things or to allow these things to shape us or influence our use of time. Jesus says, that's great. I did what I needed to do, but we got to move on. There's, there's other places I need to be, you know? This is from God. To truly appreciate and enjoy our time and make use of our time in a godly way, we have to understand and God's purpose over it. All believers must recognize that our time comes under Christ's rule, whether we're working or playing or resting. And I'm going to talk more about that next week, and I'm trying to do my best to separate time in general from, from rest. Because there's a... <clears throat> they, they go hand in hand. God doesn't care just about our work, but our time in general. Even in our free time, we're responsible to God for our use of it. There is no time where you're free to do whatever you want. There is no time when you are wholly autonomous as the world would suggest. Just do whatever you want. Separate yourself from these other things. Distance yourself from God. Separate yourself from him and just do whatever you want. This is not what we're told in scripture. All time is important for God and should be considered. We don't have, to, we don't have a pass to do whatever we want because you know, we've worked hard for a while and now um, we just need, to, just need to take care of ourselves you know, and find that inner peace and find you know, and use whatever medications we talked about last week, use whatever medications to uh, accomplish that in pursuit of whatever we want. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, be careful how you live. Don't live like fools, but like those who are wise. Make the most of every opportunity in these evil days. Some translations talk about use all the time you have, not some of the time not just the time of work. Use all the time you have, every opportunity in these evil days. Don't act thoughtlessly, but understand what the Lord wants you to do, always keeping God in mind. That's my addition. Don't be drunk with wine, because that will ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourself, and make music to the Lord in your hearts. Give thanks to, for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not in some times, not in just the times of work, in all things, even in the way we sing and the way we eat, everything we do with God at the center of attention and focus. There's an author, his name is Paul Heinzman. He wrote a book called uh, and we, we share these things, right, in our, in our YouTube video, so we can, we can link this 
book if you're interested in reading this book. Um, but he's, he wrote a book called Leisure and Spirituality, uh, Biblical, Historical, and Contemporary Perspectives. And in it, he talks about renewing our minds from a quantitative view of the way we see time to a qualitative view in the way that we view all of our time as believers. And I mentioned at the top that we tend to see our free time as quantitative, right? We count down the hours until the weekend. We get to work on Friday and our coworkers, and maybe we're even guilty of it. We talk Friday. It's like the first thing we say to our coworkers, like, woo, it's Friday, you know? Um, <laughs> and it's, it's true. It's like a real friggin' phenomenon that that's, that's, that's a thing. Every Friday, like, like clockwork. Um, it just happened last Friday at my work. We count down the hours until the weekend because the weekend means free time. We get to separate and put our world in two different stories, right? Two different levels. And then when it, Sunday hits, we count down the hours until the work week starts. And by 6 o'clock on Sunday night, we're all melancholy because work's about to start the next day. We view our time as quantitative rather than qualitative. There is a certain rhythm. There is a certain rhythm, though, that we can acknowledge in our, in our, in our walk as believers, right? Ecclesiastes talks about a time for everything. So not that you shouldn't enjoy the things that can happen on the weekend, um, but that shouldn't be the prevailing thought that leads us the quantitative view of time. How much free time can I have? How can I separate the two sort of areas of my life? We should instead view our faith the other way, the qualitative measure. View our faith and relationship with God in a more holistic manner that considers the qualitative measure. Do the things we do participate and reflect and glorify God in a meaningful way? Everything we do, as Paul says in the way that we sing and eat and celebrate, do the things, all the things we do, even in our free time, reflect and glorify God in a meaningful way. The Old and New Testament scriptures all throughout highlight uh, a consistent way in which God's people would use time to celebrate him through things like feasts and festivals, dancing and fellowship and hospitality and the way that they um, lived out their friendships and, and all of these things, the way that they rested and reflected on the Sabbath day, time spent in celebration and in wonder and in awe of God. Every opportunity was oriented and led by God. Reflection in this way is what leads to um, them honoring God's many titles and his many names. You know, God is the God of this, he's the God of this, all of these things. Um, is the reflection and, and use of our time in that way is what leads us to thinking about God as not just so one-dimensional. Genesis and Exodus and Deuteronomy and Ecclesiastes, as I mentioned, and Psalms and then Luke and then John and many of the, the history books in the Old Testament, you see the, the Jewish people setting aside free time, leisure time, to honor God in all things. The Passover itself is a time spent in celebration and remembrance of God, right? And the festival that takes place around it. There's a German, a Christian philosopher, German. He, his name is Joseph Piper. He, he says, leisure 
it must be clearly understood, is a mental and a spiritual attitude, not simply the result of external factors. It's not the inevitable result of spare time, a holiday, a weekend, or a vacation. It is, in the first place, an attitude of mind, a condition of our soul, reflection of how we view our relationship with God. The emphasis is less on how much or how often we have to do the me things, but on the dedication to God in even the time of, of leisure activity, what we would consider the, the, the time of you know, frivolity or something, the meaningless things. Everything we do should be with the intention of glorifying God and used to glorify God. And we do well to adopt that attitude, as he says here, if we expect to grow and mature in our faith and be a uh, reflection to the world and who God is. And in Heitzman's book, um, the book I just referenced a minute ago, he writes that self-centered pleasure-seeking leads only to despair. And we talked, touched on this a little bit last week. But the signs of an authentic, God-glorifying use of our me-time in our lives as believers reflect the qualitative dimension characterized and produce a certain level of fruit, you know? Reflect the qualitative dimension characterized by an attitude of rest and joy and peace and happiness and real success for God and all of these things, freedom and celebration and who God is and in, in God's creation. And they respect the quantitative rhythm, as I also mentioned, uh, the seasons to life that Solomon speaks about in Ecclesiastes. He says many times things of this nature. I have three from Ecclesiastes. I decided there's nothing better than to enjoy food and drink and to find satisfaction in work. Then I realized that these pleasures are from the hand of God. So a recognition, a glorification, an honoring of God. Who can eat and enjoy anything apart from him? And he says in chapter 3, what do people really get for all their hard work? I've seen the burden God has placed on us all, yet God has made everything beautiful in its own time. He's planted eternity in the human heart, but even so, people cannot see the whole scope of God's work from beginning to end. So I concluded there's nothing better than to be happy and enjoy ourselves as long as we can, and people should eat and drink and enjoy the fruits of, la of their labor, for these are gifts from God. So God is not left out at any point in time. And in chapter 5, it's a good, time, good thing to receive wealth from God and for the good, and the good health to enjoy it, to enjoy your work and accept your lot in life. This is indeed a gift from God. Authentic, God-honoring me time. I keep using this quote because it bugs me. Or I think that's how I deal with the fact that it bugs me. <laughs> at its core, it is at least the, the way the world views it and would have you to view it and accept it, is idolatrous and it's hedonistic. But authentic God-honoring me time is not because it remembers God in all things, in all seasons, in all gifts, in all activities, in everything we do. There isn't a separation of work and leisure activity. God is involved in all of the time spent. And authentic God-honoring me time does just that. It honors and it glorifies God and it recognizes God as the, the, the fountain for everything we have at every turn and opportunity and moment of our work and leisure. God is glorified. We should be seeking to glorify him at every 
activity of leisure in every amount of time spent, not just the busyness of work, but everything. So I have some questions to sort of kick on more discussion about this. Um, we're going to have a Valentine's raffle do that. So I'm going to ask these questions. Stick around. I don't know. I think we're staying with the broadcast. Um, so stick around. Um, and then after that, we'll break for our cell group discussion. So I have five or six questions here. Um, here we go. Simply, why do you do the things you do? Why do you spend your time the way that you do? What's the purpose? Who is it for? That's one question. Sorry. That's the way my mind was thinking about it. Why do you do the things you do? And this is for Colin. Why do you spend your time the way you do? What's the purpose? Who is it for? Next question. Do you fill your life with busyness for busyness sake, forgetting to honor God's calling in your life? Are you treating busyness as a diversion or a distraction from honoring God in all things? So how do you view your work? And then, like, do you, do you adopt the formula of comfortability, acceptance, and success in the way it shapes your life? Next question. Do the things we do, I'll post these, obviously. Do the things we do participate in, the things we do or participate in, reflect and glorify God in a meaningful way? Even the little things. Does, does the things we do Reflect and glorify God in a meaningful way. Paul speaks to this in Ephesians. Do the qualities of who God is and what he has done shine through the things you invest your time in? Your time to remember God, to honor God, to recognize God, to, to uh, accept as a gift from God? Are you connecting God back? Are you, are you rooted in God in all things? And then here's a question for, for, for practical discussion. How can you turn your free time and your leisurely activities, so for whatever that is for each of you, how can you turn your free time and your leisurely activities into things that glorify God? Can you turn your free time and leisurely activities into things that glorify God. Or, maybe there's fat in your life that needs to be trimmed because you're not able to reconcile that. You're not able to reconcile why you're doing this thing. It's void of God. So those are the questions for discussion. Let's have our Valentine's raffle first. <laughs> 